everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Alex Gronofsky, who is a founding member of Gronofsky and Sunderesh, who are New York and Ohio employment lawyers. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about his view of the world on the plaintiff side. So without further introduction, let's get going. Welcome to the Voris at Work podcast. Today, we're joined by Alex Gronofsky, a member of the plaintiff's bar, who we thought would give an interesting perspective on some of the processes, procedures, and issues our clients are seeing today. I want to introduce everybody to Alex. Alex, why don't you say hello, give us a little bit of your background. Hello, my name is Alex Gronofsky. I'm a, I'm a member of a firm called Gronofsky and Sunderesh. We have, we have a couple of offices, one in uh, New York City, and another one in Cleveland, Ohio. As Chaz said, we're, we're employment lawyers, mostly on the plaintiff side, uh, mostly representing individual employees up against their former and occasionally current employers for you know the umbrella of wrongful termination claims, uh, some restrictive covenant stuff, and, and then a bunch of things about wage and hour, how people are paid. And we've been at it for about for about 11 years now. And Alex, you were a big firm guy, right? Before you fell to the dark side, or maybe I think as you would describe it, moved to the light side. Um, I I really liked big law, but I do prefer for, for a variety of reasons, uh, working for myself and working on the plaintiff side. Cool. All right. Well, today we're going to get into a few issues that I think are on the top of everybody's mind. And the first one we're going to talk about is if, you know, for clients in Ohio, particularly, there was this law called HB 352. And the first podcast that I did was on that same subject. And I wanted to get a different perspective. The first time around, we talked to another defense side attorney. And now I want to get the plaintiff's perspective. So for those of you who are unfamiliar and need a bit of a recap, um, Ohio's law in April changed with respect to its uh, discrimination statutory framework. It was a pretty massive overhaul. Did a lot of things, moved statute of limitations from six to two years, did some, did some changes to supervisor liability, really just cleaned up the statutory framework. And on the defense side, you know, we viewed it as more of a leveling of the playing field, um, making the laws less employee friendly, um, and likewise, just moving them in line with the federal side. But with that in mind, Alex, you know, we're interested in knowing how the plaintiffs bar and the plaintiffs have seen HB 352. So walk us through a little bit about how you you on your side of the fence sees this new law and these changes? Sure. And, and you, you made a good distinction between the plaintiffs and the plaintiffs bar. From my perspective as an employment lawyer, this law doesn't affect me very much, right? It, it One of the big changes was making the statute of limitations two years instead of six. Nobody is coming to an employment lawyer in that two to six year window. Not many people anyway. And, and when they do, that's such a red flag that they, they tend to be rejected. It's, it's peculiar for somebody to be sitting on their rights for that long, right. uh, number one. And then in terms of the, the administrative uh, filings and exhausting your remedies that way, that's not a heavy burden. You know, it's, it's a form letter. It's, it's an extra half an hour of work, hour at most. So that's nothing. So from the perspective of a plaintiff's lawyer, this is not a big change. From the perspective of plaintiffs, I think there's a category of people for whom this matters. I don't think it's a huge number of people, but I think that there are people who are late to learn their rights or, you know, 
pretty far away from the legal system in that respect and don't know that they have avenues to sue or people who are trying to handle this and and get tripped up or frustrated by having to exhaust their administrative remedies or run out of time by just trying to bring a lawsuit in in the ordinary course as opposed to as opposed to filing with an agency first i think for those people and again there's not a ton of them but those are really vulnerable people those vulnerable people are hurt by this and that's that i don't want yeah that's interesting yeah yeah, as far so, as just me, it's fine. So interesting. And so for the employers listening out there, I mean, is this going to change the way you do business in the sense that are, you know, is it going to be threat letter, then OCRC charge, or are you going to go right to the OCRC and just request that right to sue and then engage through that? Oh, it's by practice to send the threat letter first. Um, I, right. I think it just makes more sense to have a conversation. Plus, it, it's my practice when I send a threat letter to invite the other side to show me their evidence. We, we do these cases on contingency. Right. If you can show me that my case stinks, I'll, I'll back down happily. You have saved me weeks, maybe months of work. <laughs> right, right. Right. So I'm, I'm open. I invite seeing that. I've, I've only seen half of the story and I'm aware of that. So that's a really good segue. So if you're an employer and you're in, you know, you get the threat letter um, from Alex Granovsky, what's the most effective way to respond to that? I've seen it a couple different ways. Some sure. people well, are for me, you better get yeah. a good lawyer. You're in trouble. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's the best way just to respond? stroke the check? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> That's it. Just blank check, send it over. and We'll take care of the rest. You heard it here first. That's it. Uh, but I mean, is it, you know, I've seen responses where it's, you know, bellicose off the bat, screw you, this is the end. I mean, does it, do you think there's value in providing even some limited documentation and a recitation of the facts as, as that employer sees it? Is that useful for you for purposes of moving a case forward and potentially reaching a resolution? Of course, 100% of the time that's useful. Yeah. and, And for both sides, frankly. Look, there are some objective facts you can agree on at the beginning of a case. The more of those you can establish, the, the better. And, and I have absolutely had cases where I will stand down. Uh, I'm thinking of one particular where we just started practicing because the other side uh, showed me the instant messages that my client was sending through their servers, which included all variety of self-portrait. Um, you know, you get that stuff and, and yet you stand down. It is what it is. Yeah, that's interesting because I think particularly, especially for in-house counsel, you know, you get a lot of these and it's always a question and it's maybe stylistic, maybe it's however your organization deals with them. But I think a lot of in-house counsel struggle with, you know, is it worth providing a full rundown of the facts? Is that actually useful? Yeah. Alex, to your to your side of it, I mean, is that helpful for your client as well? Sometimes I get the argument. 100% of the time. Okay, good, good. I mean, so I get in-house counsel tell me, well, you know, look, this is just going to fire up, you know, the plaintiff sure. here. This yeah. is going to a lawsuit. Who cares? File the suit or don't. Mm-hmm. But do you think, you know, it helps actually educate the client on your side? Yeah. And, and I will also say to those in-house counsel, a fired up plaintiff, that's my problem. Leave, leave that to their lawyer. That's not your employee anymore. That's not your problem. 
Um, in terms of gathering the facts, I, I, it's, it's always helpful to me as a plaintiff's lawyer. And in terms of why I, I think some attorneys in-house and on the defense side are reluctant to do it, I, I think it's twofold. One, it's, it's a pain in the butt to, to do the work, right? To interview people, to look at documents. Who wants to do that? Especially right away, especially when you've just gotten some three or four page letter from some lawyer you never heard of about some employee that you just fired. Who wants to do that work? That's number one. That's a pain. And if you have your lawyer do it, then that's a bunch of money. So that's problem number one. And then problem number two, I, I think as attorneys, we're, we're all sort of indoctrinated with this fail safe of, of when in doubt, say no, when in doubt, offer and do less and be more right. conservative. And so I think that there's this fear of like, uh oh, we'll share a document or establish a, a position or a story now and it'll hurt us later in the case. And I, I think that that's silly. Cases are won and lost for the, for the big things, not some sharing of information in the beginning. It's the big moving parts. And, and doing the work in the beginning saves you a lot more at the end. I think it's always worthwhile to, to put it out there. Right. What's your thought on pre-lawsuit mediation? Is that something you typically offer up? You know, when I was in house, we would have these tricky situations or even mm -hmm. now as outside counsel, something sticky, right? You know, you don't know what to do. The person's been yeah. terminated. Maybe there's some hair on it. Maybe there's not. And a plaintiff's attorney comes in and says, Hey, you know, I'm going to file this suit, but we would agree to mediate at some point. I mean, is that something you do? You think there's any value in that? Yeah, I, I think there's always value in, in settlement talks, and, and there are a lot of really effective mediators who can value a case and, and push the sides to agreement or even just get that momentum going. My, well, what's been a sticking point with, with um, pre-litigation mediation has been paying for it. Nobody wants to pay for right. it. It's not cheap. It's not cheap, and you know, representing plaintiffs invariably – that has to come out of my pocket initially and then explaining that it's coming out of their pocket later isn't always well received. Why can't the employer pay for it? Employer doesn't want to have to pay the whole freight, right? They're only half the mediating parties. So it tends to be hard to agree on. Plus you could just, you could, when I'm in that position, I can always just get frustrated and clobber the adversary with a lawsuit. Right. Right. right? I, I don't have to wait around. It's a lot so cheaper. I don't. Yeah. And then you have a million opportunities to mediate along the way, especially initially, especially once you file, you can volunteer for mediation at that point for free through the courts. Is mediation something that when it's, when it's offered up, is that something you typically re recommend to your clients and are they, do they, you get pushback on that? I mean, what's the sense there? I mean, I, so I always do, no, I don't get a lot of pushback. I don't always recommend it. I recommend it when I think that it'll work, right? I, I think there's a lot of times when the parties are just so far away that you have to litigate a little more before mediation will be effective. But right. I always give the client the option. And what, what I say to my clients who, in, in terms of settlement, the mediation is the whole thing it's that you pay for the speed, right? If, if the earlier you do mediation, 
the less you're going to settle for. And you're paying for the speed, you're paying for the certainty, and and you're paying for closure. Lawsuits are stressful. And it's, it's, it's a rough thing to go through from a plaintiff's perspective. It, it's Let's, not pleasant. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it, it's emotional, even on the defense side. I mean, sure. You know, there are allegations flying around and folks Unpleasant are ratcheted ones. up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let me dovetail that into your process. So somebody comes to you and I've referred folks to you and, and, and you know, I think somebody comes to you either off the street or through a referral you, what are you looking for when they come in the door, they sit down with you or they get on a, you know, during the pandemic, a Zoom or a Teams call sure. or whatever. Yeah. What, what are you talking to them about? What are you looking for that says, yeah, I think I might take this case? Yeah, well, I, I mean, right off the bat, I ask, how can I help you? And, and they start telling me their story. Um, I, I look for a couple of things, right? First, we're at a place with our firm where we have the luxury of, of being a little choosy with our clients. So it's got to be somebody that, that you want to help. You meet people along the way who are very bright and might even have a case, but they're horrible. You'll never please them. They're exceedingly demanding. They're unreasonable. They're jerks. So that's the first thing. It's got to be somebody you want to work with, somebody that you want to help. Number two, they have to have viable, a viable claim, right? It's got to be legally viable. There's got to be a, a statute or, or, you know, something like that that you can that you can link it to. It's got to be a story that makes sense, even if it's a technical violation of a statute. It's got to make sense in terms of the theme of of the law and the theme of a larger story that you can tell. And it's got to be a story you can sell, right? And then and then lastly, and I, I hate to sound boorish. But the money's got to make sense. I, yeah, I think right. about what's the recovery here, what's the work, and then what's the return on investment, right? Um, and the, those are the three things that I home in on when <clears throat> when I speak to a new client. And they're all they're all tricky and they're all sort of fuzzy at the edges, right? Somebody who I want to help on one day is a little different, maybe. A day after that, a story that makes sense to me on one day is different than next, right? Right. As is my evaluation of the return on investment. That can that can waver, but those are the three things that I use in evaluating whether I want to work with somebody. Yeah, that's interesting. So, I mean, what when your clients are coming to talk to you? For anybody listening to this who might be on the employer side, you know, your in-house counsel, your HR, what are the big, you know? issues your clients come to you about when they talk about why they consider filing a lawsuit? What's that theme? What are employers doing that is getting them sued? Treating them like crap. Right. That's what get. That's what makes them call me. My job at that point <laughs> is to ferret out whether we can turn that into a lawsuit. Right, right. But, but the number one thing that employers do that gets them sued is, is treat their employees poorly. And if that employee reaches the right attorney, and if that employer didn't dot their I's and cross their T's, which many don't, we're going to find a way. And, and here's where we find lawsuits, right? Um, number one, we do find plenty of actual discrimination, right? You, and, and, and that's because of a lot of things. One, because work is stressful and people are jerks. And when jerks are under stress, they act horribly. 
And so you have that coming out. And, and look, let's be honest, plenty of people um, are bigoted and act on that bigotry. So there's plenty of that. Uh, number two, there are a lot of uh, misconceptions on employer and employee side when it comes to how people are paid, uh, issues like whether somebody's exempt, non-exempt, uh, overtime, independent contractor, and then record keeping as related to that stuff. There, there are a million mistakes that an employer can make. And there's, there's a tipping point for employers where they're big enough that they have some employees who they're paying a fair amount of money, but they're not so big that they have a law firm that can figure all this stuff out for them right. and do a real audit and make sure that they're compliant with all the little things. And, and there's a little mistake, as, as you know, Chaz, can lead to a lot of liability um, yep. when it comes to wage and hour stuff. Oh my goodness. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, that's the area that I, I think enough employers or a lot of employers rather don't pay enough attention to. They think, no. yeah, okay, I got this timekeeping system. We're good here, right? We got a policy. We got a timekeeping system. You know, set it and forget it. And they don't realize that that compliance is just a, it's the journey. I mean, you never get to the destination. You're always going to be working on wage and hour compliance. And, and it changes on the city, state, and federal level yeah. constantly, constantly. Yeah, and there are new terms coming up. It's it's amazing. I mean, in New York, there there are all kinds of specific laws for fast food workers that, right. that are completely different and very specific. Well, let's not even talk about California. My God, I mean, yeah, you, you basically are a California lawyer, or you know a little bit enough to know to call a California lawyer. That's <laughs> that's exactly right. It's it's very specific. Yeah, I mean, so what kind of cases are you seeing typically? You know, you talk about you know poor treatment, right? I would call that poor bedside manner. And I talk about that yeah. a lot. Like if you're kind of a, if you're jerking your employees around, if they're not feeling they're being treated equitably, if they're not emotionally secure and they feel psychologically safe, you know, that really can lead to lawsuits and, and long tail liability. What are you seeing though? Is there a type of case? Is it you know, age discrimination? Is it retaliation? Is it wage an hour? What are the common cases that you're seeing time and time again? Yeah. So lots of wage an hour. That's that's for sure. I mean, I uh, plenty of people call me as saying that they were wrongfully terminated and then they, they don't have a, a wrongful termination claim. But then as I start probing about about how they're compensated, a lot of people and, and it comes to two things, really. One is off the clock work. Uh, pre-shift and post-shift work where you're just, yeah. or or people are just paid for their strict scheduled shift, but they're required to do X, Y, Z beforehand and then A, B, C afterwards. And then a ton of misclassification where somebody's uh, misclassified as exempt, paid a salary, and then working 60, 70 hours a week when they should be getting overtime. So a, a lot of that, in terms of um, the wrongful termination umbrella, um, there I, I see some nice retaliation claims. And, and retaliation, I, I would imagine you'd agree, Chaz, um, is easier to prove than, than discrimination because oh, yeah. you just have to have your sort of discrete protected activity. Um, so I'm seeing some nice ones of, of those. And then 
though, always good sexual harassment. And that stuff's great because everybody nowadays does their sexual harassment by text. So you have a, you know, pretty discreet oh record God, of it, complete with everything you could imagine. So those are always nice when those come in because you know you're going to have a great evidence trail right. that's not only incriminating, but it's terribly embarrassing. I mean, oh. you know, you you know, people are really putting it out there, um, <laughs> literally. Yeah, so literally and figuratively. Yeah. I, yes. I know. So it's it's very embarrassing. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and I I think especially now as we're in this remote world, you know, folks got to be careful about hey, just because you're now operating a lot via check or via text rather, and via iMessage, Teams, yeah. Snapchat, Slack, whatever it is. Um, you know, you need to be really careful that your folks are not being super duper casual and just forgetting that that's work. Cause you're right. You're, you're going to make a rock solid record for a plaintiff's attorney. Oh, it's great. It's great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's great. one area. I totally agree. I mean, the, definitely the wage and hour as well. I mean, I, you know, if you look at the litigation reports that come out, I mean, there are three or four of those filed every day and it used to just be, yeah. It was the big guys who got hit, the huge corporations. But I'm they've, seeing it all the way down. They figured it out. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I think that's probably accurate. I mean, they have put the work in to mitigate those claims. And now you're seeing the mid to even small employers. I mean, I've seen some very small, you know, 100 or, or below employers, yep. 100 employee or below employers get hit with these things recently. So, it's, I mean, they it's really- It's so lucrative. Yeah. It's, from my perspective, it's just so lucrative. Oh, you get it. Even a relatively fee, small yeah. case between the interest of the attorney's fees and the three-year look back, which in New York, by the way, is six. Ooh, boy. And you tack on double damages, it's a lot. It's, yeah. it's the, the numbers from my side are- are nice well and it's for you too i imagine it's a record right you've got time records you know you got yeah. badge swipes you have all this stuff so and, you know and you if have we a lot of don't it endures in our favor right right exactly yeah that's exactly right i mean they definitely have been pushing that for all of my clients i mean it's it's certainly one of those ones where it's like hey you need to be if you don't know about this you need to because you need to be auditing constantly well defendants um, are incredulous we periodically will represent the defendant They're like well what do you mean the court will just take their word for it <laughs> I, I say it's, it's your job to keep these records these people are earning you money like that's part of the the payoff payback. right right well i explain to my clients too i'm like hey guys you know just so we're clear this is a law written in like 1938 right it doesn't yeah. necessarily track the modern workplace all that well and it's been sort of bolted on over the last, you know, fit, you know, 70 some odd years and it, but it still really doesn't track modern work. And so you just have to be mindful of that and know that it's a potential area of liability for you. Oh yeah. It's a minefield. <laughs> it really, oh, and I get a lot of uh, non-compete calls. A lot of, non a lot of non-compete work. What's your feeling on non-competes? I have my own personal feelings, but what, what do you think about non-competes <clears throat> about fairness, whether they're useful? I don't think they're terribly, useful anymore i i think that for the most part it's it's the fact of the non-compete even more so than the utility of it a lot of the time right, it, right. A non-compete could be useful in the fact that it might make an employer less keen to compete and if it does that then it's effective even right. if the employer never sues on it because the truth is that's often a losing endeavor the lawsuit that's yeah, good so 
Yeah, it could be good money after bad, you know. You're chasing well, down a, somebody for a year spending a quarter of a million dollars. And by and, the time and, it's all said and done, it's all basically moot. And what are the damages? Unless this person takes a book of business, if it's just a technical violation of the non-compete, but your business is chugging along, what are you what are your damages? What are you suing for? Yeah, it's interesting. what's the point? Just to keep well, what do you recover at the end of it? A target yeah, I mean, fees? Yeah. If you keep chugging along, company A suffers no harm. Who cares if employee B, if employee goes to company B, even if it is a competitor? What do you what do they care? Well, yeah, they I just don't want them to mess with their business. Right. And I tend to focus my clients if I can on, you know, confidentiality, trade secrets, and non-solicits. Sure. Yeah. Totally non-solicits. That's one area where I think, you know, there's a lot of value in that. I mean, I get an employer saying, I don't want, you know, uh, my employee, Elaine, who's got a, you know, has contacts all throughout our client base, walking out, you know, to my, across the street to my competitor and calling on every single client. That's you know, she's ever had. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's generally where I try to focus folks. I just think that's an interesting because those debates are raging. You're seeing laws yeah. pass. I think Illinois maybe yeah. just passed one recently where they're going to try to really curtail the extent to which you can lock somebody into an non-compete. I, I wrote a blog post on, on my site where I said that, you know, non-competes are, are going extinct and it doesn't matter. I don't think it matters. And the, the smart thing I'm seeing some companies do with non-competes that I like is they tie deferred compensation to not competing, which is awesome. Because here's the thing. If, if you go from company A to a competitor, company B, they're probably not going to sue you. But on the other hand, if you know you go from come and because they're not going to sue you because it's hard, it's expensive. There's a lot of risk on right. the employer side of having a judge invalidate your non-compete, and now all of your current and former employers can run around. Right? That's a real risk. And so, you know, that's hard to do. But on the other side, just saying, "Oh, you went to a competitor. Now we're not going to pay you." That's easy, and it's free, and it's zero risk. So right. the companies that tie it to deferred comp, that's a smart way to incentivize non-competition as Real opposed money. to just the threat. Well, yeah, you stand to lose it. Yeah. And then you can make an informed decision. Yeah. I, th I think you made a really good point too earlier with respect to this waiver issue. And I, I tell folks all the time, you can have the non-compete, but understand you need to enforce it. If you <laughs> decide and you pick and you're cherry picking and say, well, you know, these people we know are competing. We're, we, we don't really care, but this person we're going to lay the hammer down on. Guess what that person is going to argue in court? It's they have these things. They're not worth the paper they're written on because they're never enforcing it. And that that can get some legs in front of a judge who, you know, is maybe hesitant to lock somebody into an agreement that they can't work. Yeah, of course, of course. And short of real damages. And the only way that you can damage your prior employer is either A, Poaching their clients or employees, which is a non-solicit, right. or B, divulging their, their confidential information and trade secrets, which is your NDA, that's it. Who cares otherwise? Yeah, you're protected. I completely agree with you. Yeah. Let me ask you one sort of final question here. You know, as you look at the legal landscape, new administration coming in, a lot of times you see, you know, new platforms, new laws being teed up. Now we have a new Congress as well. What are the areas and the new laws that you as a plaintiff's attorney are watching and that my clients and my client base should also be watching? 
No, this workforce shortage, that's something that's that's interesting to me. Yeah. I wonder what's because the dynamic is is changing. Right. And I'm not even sure where it's going. I, you know, in employment law, when when COVID first came on after that, you know, the world stopped for a couple of weeks uh, last March, our stuff got busy. And and it's really started swirling and changing in, in peculiar ways. Every prediction I've made with COVID has been wrong. Um, <laughs> right. Join the club. Every, yeah. yeah, well, yeah, well, being a junior epidemiologist. But <laughs> um, it's th this workforce shortage is also super interesting. Yeah. And where people are choosing to work, I think there are going to be a lot of very small businesses popping up and a lot of independent contractor type of issues coming up uh, around that. It's going to be an interesting time. I always say being an employment lawyer is by far the best kind of lawyer to be. I think we have yeah. the we have the best cases. It's the most interesting work. And I think, you know, doing what we do on both sides. I mean, you are out, you know, vindicating rights to your to your client base. Yeah, We're it's out. the good guys against your right. terrible clients. Well, and it's funny. I think, you know, in a lot of ways, we're, we're sort of aligned in the same sense in that defense side attorneys are really about bulletproofing from a compliance perspective, stopping those violations, improving the employee experience and the culture to stave off those lawsuits. And then, you know, your side is to vindicate, you know, when something's actually happened that, that requires intervention in the law. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, people are people. Right. Right. That's the best part of our job, right? I mean, that, that's why, you know, employment lawyers will exist on both sides of the V forever because yeah. people are people and things are going to happen. And when you talk about folks engaging interpersonally, inevitably there's going to be conflict, period. Yeah, for sure. All right. And now well, that it's at home, the rules are shifting and who knows yeah. where. Oh, it's going to be, a, it's going to be a fascinating couple of years, but all right, we're going to wrap up Alex. Thank you so, so much for joining us. This was really, really good, you know, really helpful, really enlightening. I hope the folks took a lot away from this as to, you know, what folks are looking at when they are looking to file a lawsuit, when they're talking to folks like Alex and, you know, hopefully you can take some best practices and tips away from this to help you guys bulletproof yourselves going uh, forward in the future. And, and you got to hear from a plaintiff's attorney. You could see that, you know, they're just regular folk, right? <laughs> <laughs> they're not the dark lords of the bar. They're, <laughs> they, uh, you know, so this was, again, thank you so much, Alex. This was fantastic. And uh, if anybody has any follow-up or anything like that, you can reach out and we'll happy to connect you with Alex and uh, we'll share Thanks. this far and wide. All right. Well, thank you for having me. This is really fun. All right. Thanks for listening. That was the Voris at Work podcast with special guest Alex Gronofsky. Uh, please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, uh, give us a rate and review. That helps us out. And as always, if you have questions or if you have topics you'd like for us to cover, feel free to reach out. And if you'd like to be a guest, likewise, reach out. We'd love to have you. Thank you. Thank you.